Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jody Plochet, and he wrote a book back in 2019 titled Why Gary Why, which I read through today. Fascinating book, really interesting story. You'll probably find out what his relationship is to some of these, one of the most famous viral videos out there. But this book right now on Amazon has 193 five-star ratings, well-deserved. And you can get it in Kindle and paperback. Um, but Jody Ploche has worked in the field of violence prevention since 1995. He attended Louisiana State University, where he served on the executive board for Men Against Violence, a campus organization aimed at preventing campus violence, including sexual assault and physical violence. Then he worked at the Victim Services Center of Montgomery County in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and also worked as a sexual assault counselor as well as a prevention educator. And he has provided crisis intervention to sexual assault victims on the agency's 24-hour crisis hotline, as well as through in-person support at hospitals and police stations. He's also facilitated sexual violence risk reduction programs for students ranging from pre-K to college. And he has served on the statewide Men Against Sexual Violence Committee. In October 20, 2002, he attended the White House Conference on Missing, Exploited, and Runaway Children in Washington, D.C., featuring Colin Powell and George W. Bush. And he also was named the Survivor Activist of the Year by the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency. He shared his personal story as well as his knowledge about working with survivors of sexual assault on numerous TV shows, including Geraldo, Now It Can Be Told, Maury, The Oprah Winfrey Show, Lisa, Real TV, The Montel Williams Show, John Walsh Show, CNN's Connie Chunk Tonight, ABC World News Tonight. In ESPN's E60. But again, we're going to talk about this book you wrote, highly recommended. Title is Why Gary Why. And the author again is Jody Plochet. So, Jody, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, for people who may not have heard your story or this book, can you kind of talk about your background and the story behind the book Why Gary Why? All right. Uh, as a kid growing up, I was involved in athletics. I played, um, like, I started playing tackle football when I was six years old. I couldn't start playing basketball until I was eight years old, but then I played softball, eventually moved to baseball, and I also played soccer. I would leave, a fo I would leave one of my football games at halftime to go to my soccer game. Um, with that, I had an older brother who was also involved and a younger brother who wasn't really involved. So when I was in fifth grade, I got a flyer to take karate. Well, I balled the flyer up and threw it in the garbage can before I even walked out of the door. Well, my little brother, he brought the flyer home, so my mother saw it and decided that that might be something he can do. So she put him in it, but when she put him in it, she put my older brother and me and a neighbor's friend agreed to go. And so we all started taking karate. The first karate teacher showed up for the first lesson, then didn't show up for the second lesson. So eventually our names, all the people had paid for like 10 karate lessons. Um, our names were turn turn turned over to a young up and coming karate uh, martial arts instructor, Jeff Doucette, uh, who had just opened up his karate school and he had a fighting team. And so uh, we started taking it from him. He was going to honor the remaining lessons. Well, you know, after a couple lessons, you know, Jeff told my mom that, you know, your boys are really athletic. They're really good. You know, I think they could you know, really do good in karate. And so um, we agreed to continue taking karate lessons from Jeff, even though once our, once our paid up lessons were done, we just signed up and start, kept taking them. Well, unbeknownst to my parents, um, Jeff Doucette was a pedophile and he was a child molester. So, um, eventually after several months of taking karate, he started working on me and, uh, 
you know, he would uh, try to stretch us out and he would get real close to us and hold us like, you know, push our legs down to make us do a split. And I think that looking back would be like the first time he was trying to normalize him touching me, you know, between my legs saying, Oh, look, your legs are tight right there when I'm doing a split. And I think that that was him trying to normalize him touching me inappropriately. Um, the first time it really registered in my mind as a child, I was driving the car. He was going to let us, we're coming home from karate practice. And he's like, all right, who wants to drive the car? You know, so we all wanted to drive the car. So I was, you know, I was first up first on Jeff's lap. And as we're driving a car, he starts putting his hand in my lap and I'll start thinking, Oh my God, you know, and, and then it went away. It was like, almost like, it was almost like an accident. Like that's what I was justifying in my mind. That it was an accident. And um, it wasn't, that was him testing my boundaries. And so uh, after I didn't say anything about that, then he started to do actually more. Okay. This isn't an accident. This is, you know, he's actually rubbing on me while I'm trying to sleep, um, which led to, you know, basically a full sexual relationships where he would perform oral sex on me. Then he would have sex with me. And this lasted for almost a year. Eventually. Um, and you were what, 10 or 11 at the time? Yeah. It's sort of when I was 10 and went on to, to I was 11 years old. Um, he, eventually, he in, uh, kind of ingratiated himself into your family too. right? Oh yeah. He didn't just, yeah. He didn't just, you know, groom me. He groomed the family. I mean, there was one time he told my parents that he had injured himself when he was like six years old and he couldn't have kids. Um, because he had gotten his, you know, I guess private parts mangled on a fence, jumping over a fence. And so he couldn't have kids. That's why he loved kids so much. That's why he wanted to be around kids so much. And I mean, that immediately when they first met him, they heard that story. So it just kind of takes that, that off the table. You know, I mean, any red flag they may have had was gone now. And I mean, there's a reason why the average pe uh, pedophile molests over 100 children before they're caught because they're good at what they do. And he was in your household talking to your parents, all that stuff, too. Right? Eventually, yeah. I mean, eventually, you know, it's like, hey, Jeff, why don't you come over Saturday night? We're getting together. Um, so he came over Saturday night. My family got together. And so he, he became a regular. I mean, he would go to my aunt's and uncle's house when they would host the party. I mean, so, it, I mean, even my dad, uh, you know, brought him to Sunday dinner one time because he had stayed over Saturday night and he lived at the karate studio. So daddy brought him back to the karate studio. And when you dropped him off. You know, I guess Jeff was looking sad and was walking to the karate studio. So my dad got to the uh, stoplight. I mean, the first stoplight outside the karate school. And he's just bawling. He's crying. I'm like, what? He's just like, he goes, he's so pitiful. He has nobody. So my dad turned the car around, went back, picked him up, brought him home, let him shower, gave him a shirt, fresh shirt out of the closet, dressed him up and took him to my grandparents, my dad's parents' house for Sunday dinner. Wow. Right. So he's close to your family, but also taking you on these trips, athletic trips, right? Karate trips. Yeah. We went on a few tournaments, went to Houston a couple times. I think, uh, trying to think we had a karate tournament here. It was another kind of local, uh, karate tournament. And there's another time we went and sparred with another gym and a couple towns over. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was not uncommon for me to be riding with Jeff to Fort Worth, Texas in a van with a bunch of other kids going to a karate tournament. That, that was and he was also he was also kind of a, a swindler too. Like he had he. Oh, he's one hundred percent a swindler. He's a con artist. Um, so the summer of '83, he had decided he was going to use us as a business idea, um, and he came up with these LSU bandanas, kind of like the it's like a purple and gold tiger stripe bandana, and. He called it a tiger ride. Well, my dad actually, and my dad, of course, introduced Jeff to one of his friends who was a local business owner, was interested in buying these bandanas. And so the guy put in an order for like, let's say 15,000 bandanas because he had like 30 stores, like convenience stores around the Baton Rouge area. 
And so he put in an order for like 15,000 and Jeff just spent the money. He didn't purchase the bandanas with him. And so the guy didn't get his bandanas or he didn't get his money back. So he was the one that actually, uh, I think Jeff was facing, uh, I guess going to court to, to for this guy and the money and Jeff couldn't come up with the money. So eventually when Jeff couldn't come up in the money in February of 1984, uh, Jeff decided he was going to leave town. And since I was his love interest for the past year, he decided I was coming with me, with him. And so when he skipped town, uh, that's when he took me. Right. So you went on this thing and your mom had checked him out, right? So there was no. Yes. The uh, first time we were convictions. Yeah. The first time we ever went to the movies with him, she uh, called her brother that worked for the sheriff's department and said, can you check on this guy? Now, whether he did or didn't, I don't know, but he said, Oh no, he's fine. Ain't nothing wrong with him. And so, uh, so, I mean, my mother even took that extra step to do a background check with her brother, who was a cop, um, and Jeff came out clean, which, looking back, he shouldn't have. Right. And did you ever get the feeling that he was also abusing other boys at the same time well, as you? Uh, I mean, I don't get the feeling. I saw it with my own eyes. Okay. Um, there was a time where, you know, he... He told me if I didn't perform oral sex on me, he was going to make the other kid do it. And I said, well, make the other kid do it. And he did. He, the other kid just went underneath the covers and, and performed oral sex on him. So it all leads up. He's in trouble with the law or going to be in trouble. You actually involved in forging checks with him or something like that. And yeah, so like, he, yeah, he had me sign some checks with my mother's name. Just, I mean, $20 here, $15 there. But, I mean, that, that was another issue with Jeff, too. But he was charming. He had that, that you say you say in the book like he was very charming and was able to Oh watch watch Criminal Minds. I've been I've been binge binge watching Criminal Minds for like the last couple months. And I mean he's every bit as charming as Ted Bundy. So just like a glib talker can really charm people and things like yeah, that. Yeah, he could make people laugh. I mean, yeah, he, he was just a con artist. That's all he did. But he didn't care about nobody but himself. So he decides to flee with you with not much of a plan, right? Just he was going to go to California and find a job or something. He had no money. Hey, we're, go we're going to Los Angeles, find a job. We're going to you know, live our life together. He's going to pose me as his son. And so we took my mother's car actually to Port Arthur, Texas. That was on a Sunday. And so that Monday he tried to get money for a bus ticket, which I think he got from his uncle. And then on that Tuesday we took a bus from Orange, Texas to Los Angeles and my mother, by the way, was told that Sunday we would be coming home Monday. And when we didn't come home Monday, that's when she contacted the police. And so the police and my mother went to Port Arthur. She knew I was with Jeff's, and I knew I was at Jeff's mom's house. She knew that. And so she went with the police officers to Jeff's mom's house looking for me. And we had already taken a bus like about an hour before they got there. All right. So he's moving slowly. And so, like, he uh, dyed your hair, right? This whole kind yeah, of. Yeah, he did. I think he did that in. Uh, he did that in the the motel room in Anaheim. Once we got settled after, I think he died here after I, we got back from Disneyland. He took me to Disneyland, and I think it was like that evening when we got back from Disneyland, he dyed my hair black, which was snow white blonde, and then he shaved his beard and he dyed his hair. I guess he tried to dye it blonde, and it came out kind of red looking. But uh, yeah, he 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 went that far to disguise me. Right. So then, like he was just conning his way across the country, right? Didn't he ask? Find some guy in a karate mag to get another 600 bucks or whatever. Yeah, so. once we got to L.A., you know, we really didn't have any money. 
So he bought a karate magazine and he looked in the back and there was a guy named Al Garza out of Houston area. <clears throat> and we had fought at one of Al's tournaments well, fairly recently. And so he just, he told Al, he said, look, man, I brought a group of kids out to California. My van got stolen. Can you please just wire me, you know, just a couple bucks so I can get, get us back home. And he sent us $500 Western, $600 Western union and Jeff collected five fifty. Right. So, that allowed you. You were in California, what three, two or three weeks or something? No, that was. I was going a total of ten days. So nice. you figure a couple days in Texas, a couple days on the bus. I think we got to we got to L.A. at like two a.m. on that Thursday of that week. So Thursday, and then he was arrested on a leap year, twenty uh, ninth. He was arrested the twenty ninth of February, and it was a leap year. And then I was returned home March 1st. And Jeff didn't come home till March 16th. And then the thing that he, the mistake was the collect call, right? That's why. I yes. Well, well, and I think the reason why Jeff allowed me to make the collect phone call is because I think Jeff was out of money. <clears throat> that, I mean, because we had been paying for the phone, the first couple of long distance calls we made. We go, you know, here's five bucks for that call. Here's 10 bucks for that call. But we were out of money. And so I think that was just kind of like, okay, you know what? Let me. Let me throw in the towel. Let, let me get arrested. Let's go back home. And then I'll con my way out of this when I get back to Baton Rouge. I think that that was his, his actual plan at that point. And he is what, 26, 27 at the time? He was 20. No, he was only, he was 25, one month and two weeks. So what happened next when you, when the police showed up in Anaheim? All right. So when the police showed up and brought bus, all right. So he allowed me to call my mother collect, which my mother asked for time and charges. What that means is when the phone calls over, the operator gets back on. And I'm not I'm not telling you this. I'm telling the audience who might not be old enough to remember um, the operator would come back on the phone call because when you make a collect call, you have the other person pay for the call. And so she told my mother that call was 20 minutes and it's going to be you know $14 or whatever the going rate and the length of time was at the time back in 1984. So excuse me. So. We're, he's talking on the phone to my mother. He's standing on the right side of me, on the right side of the, the bed. And I heard a knock on the door. I heard a key. And then I heard, you know, like, please, please, please. And I was sitting on the bed closest to the door. They put guns on me. They had guns on him. They took me. They pulled me out. I saw a guy walk around the bed. And Jeff kind of went, you know, hands to the wall, kind of, you know, turned around, hands to the wall. And the guy walked around the bed and he told Jeff, I ought, to, I ought to punch you in the, I think either, I think GD mouth or something like that. I ought to punch you in the mouth. And then they, they had me outside by the pool area. And that's the last time I ever saw Jeff again. I never saw him after that. They took me from there to the police station where they questioned me for a couple of hours and I denied everything. And then after the, and they were doing good cop and bad cop to me too. And I heard, I could overhear him going, well, well you go in there and you haven't explained what this was. Oh, it's on the towel. And, you know, he'll, he'll have to explain what it was. And I'm thinking like, what's on the towel? Anyway, they thought it might be like some fecal matter, but it was uh, the hair dye because it was brown. Um, so they were trying to like intimidate me. I went from the police station to the hospital where they did a complete physical and a rape kit. And so I knew it was only a matter of time that, you know, that rape kit was going to come back positive. So I just kept lying, kept saying Jeff never touched me. Um, they took me to some like home for neglected children. I stayed the day there. Um, one 10 in the morning, I flew out LAX. I got to New Orleans at 6 a.m. And that was March 1st. And so Jeff wouldn't be flown home till March 16th, which was like two weeks later. It was a Friday. But in the, the week before Jeff uh, 
was flown back was when my parents found out about the the hospital report. That's when Mike Barnett with the sheriff's department who had kind of led the investigation, sat my parents down and said, you know, uh, Jeff had been sexually abusing Jody and, you know, daddy said, well, I'm gonna kill him. And, you know, Mike said he's told many parents uh, about their children being sexually abused and that it didn't raise a red flag because most parents answer is I'm gonna kill him, you know, or, you know, uh, I'm gonna they take weren't some aware of, of anything. Up, yeah, they weren't aware of anything up until that point, right? No, my, I mean they they at that point they had their suspicions. Right. Okay, it was just confirmed. And then once my mother sat me down and told me that, you know, okay, you know, Jeff fooled with you. Then I immediately I just said yes, he did. And then I kind of told her some what happened, maybe how it started, uh, how long it went on. And then she was like, all right, go play. So I got on my bike and I rode down to my friend's house. And I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off my shoulder. I've been keeping this secret for over a year. And, uh, you know, it just felt good to actually feel like I can get back to normal being a normal 11-year-old kid. Boy, and you, that, you were, that only lasted right, for a week. Right. But it wasn't fully normal because you were in the news, too. Like, everybody in town knew your story. So you were. Well, they knew of- I had been kidnapped, but no one had known. A, no one knew I'd been sexually abused. That didn't happen until a week later when Daddy announced to everybody what had happened. I see. So, so what? So yeah. So next? my 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 classmates at school they didn't know because uh, I still had my ticket stuff from Disneyland. So when they're like, "Man, did that man mess with you?" I was like, "Look, I went to Disneyland," and they're like, "Man, I wish he'd have kidnapped me." I'm thinking to myself, "No, you don't." But uh, so nobody at my school knew I'd been sexually abused, and it wasn't until Daddy shot him a week later on March 16th uh, that you know the world would find out. And how how did that how did that take place? Like I would think. A lot of people in my audience have seen that video of uh, Doucet and your dad. But can you talk about how he knew what was going to happen and what was happening? It's like 595. All right. All right. So you got to go back to when my dad was in college. All right. So when my dad was in college, he worked as a cameraman at Channel 2 WBRZ TV here in Baton Rouge. Uh, I ran into James Carville a couple of years ago at an LSU football game. And he was like, oh, when your daddy was working at Channel 2, he was so funny. But uh, so my dad worked at Channel 2, and he also drank at a bar or restaurant at the restaurant's bar called the Cotton Club. It was a place called the Cotton Club, and that literally was less than a half a mile down the road from Channel 2. So daddy knew everyone that worked at Channel 2 because he used to work there, and he was on their bowling team. I remember going with them, uh, and uh, one of the reporters had uh, the last MASH t-shirt on for like the last MASH show that aired on TV. And we were at the bowling alley and daddy bowled. So he was friends with all these people. And, so, yeah. You said your dad was friends with almost everybody, like super friendly, gregarious. Yes. Uh, he was out at the bar, bought everyone a drink. Uh, you know, his, his job, his, his job was to entertain. He was a salesman. So, I mean, he had his, uh, you know, company card that he can entertain clients or, and he, that's what, that's what his job was to say, make people laugh and entertain and make them buy their, uh, rent equipment from him. That, that was his job. And so one of the guys from channel two, his name was Bob Shadell. He's a program director. He looked at my dad and he goes, Hey, uh, you know, when they bring your boy back talking about Jeff and daddy said, I think he's back. And he goes, they won't tell me. And that's when Bob Shadell said, no, he's not back yet. Let me go find out. So he went and he called channel two and said, Hey, when are they bringing Doucette back? And they said, Oh, his flight scheduled to land at nine Oh eight. And so Bob Shadell's like, Oh, he's going to be in at nine Oh eight. And so he told my dad, exactly what time Jeff was coming in. And so that's how my dad knew. And my dad actually was his weekend to have us because my parents were split up and we were out at our camp on false river, which is kind of like a lake, kind of like a lake cabin. And, uh, 
my dad made it out there. But when he got out there, he turned around and he went back to the airport. And then he got on the phone, called his best friend. He was actually on the phone. People, uh, they'll say, oh, you know, he was pretending to be on the phone. No, no, he was talking to his best friend. He told his best friend. Back he's when like, they had pay phones, right? Back, lines back when they had pay phones. And, yeah. I mean, he said, okay. I, at first, he saw Mike Burnett because Mike Burnett came out to look because the cameraman was out there. And behind the cameraman, a, cow, a, a little crowd had gathered. So Mike Burnett went out looking behind. The, you know, the camera to see who, you know, may have been out there. He's looking for my dad or, or any of the other parents that Jeff had molested their kids. So Mike's looking and Jeff even said, my brother, Sam, I said, he said, my brother, Sam might try to break me out. Or if he knows what I did to these kids, he might try to kill me too. So Mike's looking, Mike checks it out. And Mike, the very beginning of the video, you see Mike kind of wave Jeff and Bud, the other, other police officer, Bud Connor, he waves Jeff and Bud around the corner where you can see in the video, Jeff and Bud are talking. And Bud's like, you know, if you see anybody, just hit the ground. And and Mike Burnett told me this a couple, probably a couple months ago. I see him every now and then. He uh, and he's actually the one that yelled "Why, Gary? Why?" when the gun went off. And uh, he told me he said, "Yeah." He said, "Yeah." He said, "Me and uh, Bud, we were out in L.A." And he said, "Man, we tied one on tight the night before we had to go pick Jeff up." He goes, so I'm walking through the airport. He says, I see the television camera, and I'm thinking to myself, all these people are looking for a movie star, but they're going to get nothing but two drunks and a pedophile. And he said, right then when that thought went through his head is when that gun went off. And he turned around, and he saw my dad, and that's when he yelled, Gary, why, why, Gary? And he ran, and he actually shielded my dad, because he knew my dad, shielded my dad from the other police officer who had dropped to his knee and reached for his gun. And that other police officer pulls that gun out. Walks over to my dad, puts the gun to my dad's head, takes the gun out of my dad's hand, looks at him and says, you son of a bitch. And he turns around to Jeff's dead body and eventually kind of rolled Jeff over. Eventually he would shut Jeff's eyes. But, yeah, so that's how that all went down. And, it, I mean, in that, it was reverberated. It became – it's still kind of a viral clip. People are still – it's like a, a meme or something. But oh, a couple months time, ago, it was a huge incident. Yeah, I would say a couple months ago – um, I screenshotted it. Someone had posted it. I think it may have been the Father's Day meme of my dad. And it said it was shared over 100,000 times, and it had 4.1 million views in four days. Wow. Wow. And that's just in one spot. That video is all over the internet. It's everywhere. Oh, I, and your I dad's was picture is a meme, too. He's a meme. Oh, yeah. They got laser eyes, and people yes, always on, it. it's on Twitter. Um, I, I was talking to my business partners because we're trying to, you know, turn the book into a documentary and, and maybe a feature film. Um, but he told me he said, "Oh, when you bring up sexual abuse, they just want to they want to shy away from it," which I think is a uh, BS because I just watched a show on child rape, kidnapping, and murder called uh, "Girl in the Picture." I just watched that this week or last week. It probably was this week. And, and actually, the one cool, the only cool thing about the whole show was a very terrible, depressing show was that the she had given up the baby for adoption. Well, the baby grew up and had a kid, and at the end, the little baby's wearing an LSU shirt, like that where I went to school. So that, that was, was kind of top neat. ten show. That was a top ten show on Netflix. People were yeah. So, so so they're telling me, oh, uh, they're telling me, oh, when as soon as you mention sexual abuse, they want to shy away from it. I'm like, that's bull, because you can watch Larry Nasser, that uh, uh, athlete one or A or whatever. I mean, that's about uh, molestation and rape. So I think what it is is they don't want to glorify my dad. Uh, doing what he did and getting off from it. Vigilante, and so, right, right. Yeah, so I know. So I actually, I told my business partner, I said, why don't we try to rebrand it? How about we say, uh, Why Gary Why, America's First Viral Video? It really is. I mean, it's still out there. And so that, that 
shot, one shot, Jeff Doucet dies instantly. And what happens next in the whole story? Your dad gets arrested. Well, they, they, they arrest my dad with attempted second-degree murder because Jeff had not died yet, even though he was dead before he hit the floor. They were able to keep him alive long enough to harvest some of his organs. So I guess he was not completely worthless. Uh, he was able to do some good in his death. But um, so my dad, of course, was arrested, put in jail. He shot him on a Friday night, so he couldn't post bail till Monday morning. When he got out of jail on Monday morning, he went straight to a psychiatric facility. Or maybe he went to his, dad, uh, his friend's house for a couple of days. But eventually he was put in a psychiatric facility to be evaluated for about a month. And then after that, he, he moved back home. Yeah, my parents had been separated. And they had told my mother that he won't be drinking anymore. He can't. And so she welcomed him back. And it probably was, I've seen someone post another day, said, oh, well, I didn't talk to my dad for 15 years, which was not true. Um, maybe 15 days. But I, I remember it was sometime probably in July of 84, me and my dad and, a, and a, you know, my cousins and my brothers and sisters were all walking down to the neighborhood pool. And, and me and daddy were kind of up front and we were talking. And I, I just remember that day just on the way to the pool telling him like, okay, I, I don't, I'm not mad at you. I don't blame you. I understand why you did what you did. Um, it's not, it's not what I wanted, but you know, I'm not, just don't think I'm mad at you anymore. Cause I, at first I was mad at him. Right. And you're kind of had a kind of a conflicted thing, like, uh, as a young person, which is not unusual in, uh, you know, molestation things like you think. No, not at all. No, the, the abuser okay. uses the child's affection as their, their biggest security blanket. You know, I didn't want Jeff dead. I didn't want him. Uh, I just wanted him to quit fooling with me. Uh, not just me. I, I didn't want him to like move on to somebody else. I just want him to not, you know, screw kids. And so, um, looking back, and I, I tell people all the time, I don't advise any parent to follow my father's footsteps because he got lucky. Because eventually, to the listening audience who don't know, he got sentenced to probation and, and community service. He didn't do any other jail time than that weekend, the night of the shooting. Um, it's more important for a parent to be there for their child. Ellie Nestler. Back in 1993 in California, shot and killed the man who had, you know, allegedly molested her son. She ended up going to jail, and now her son is serving life in prison because, uh, you know, he with his anger management, uh, he ended up beating a guy to death because he stole some tools. So it's more important that you're there for your child. So don't don't look at my dad and think that's the right thing to do. My dad got lucky because he didn't go to jail. He still had four babies at home that he had to take care of and a wife. So. I guess if they were separated before the shooting, the wife maybe didn't factor in. But, I mean, he still had four kids, and he didn't need to go to jail for the rest of his life. And you you were very fortunate in a lot of ways because it seems like you adapted back into the society, school. It seems like the, the, uh, the community really kind of rallied around you. Did you get that kind of sense? Yeah. I mean, even today, rarely, rarely. I mean, there are your people who are like, well, you know, it's not – uh, you shouldn't take the law into your own hands. And I got a clip. My dad was on Sally Je Je Jesse Raphael, and I've got a clip of my dad. Sally Jesse looks at my dad and goes, you don't believe in taking the law into your own hands, do you? He said, no, I don't. And she goes, but you would do it again? He said, yes, I would. So he didn't believe in vigilanteism. He didn't believe in taking the law into your own hands, but also he didn't believe that you screw with someone's family like Jeff did. So I guess that was where his mental anguish was coming from is because he was – he was torn between this is my family and I'm going to protect my family versus thou shall not kill and I'm going to hell. Because that was the first thing my mother told my dad. She said, Gary, you know, you're going to hell. And he said, yes. And he was OK with it. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of your whole book is your story, but it's also 
your career too, because you talk about grooming and how to avoid, you know, how to keep sites out for molesters and things like that. Can you talk about that part of your life? Okay, I would, I would say, I would, I would qualify or say, that, say it like this about the book. The book is a manual on um, how to deal with child sexual abuse. Okay, not just as far as like, even if your child's never been sexually abused, how to act around them, things not to say around them. Also, signs to look for, ways to re reduce your risk. I mean, it literally is a violence, I mean, a sexual violence prevention manual with my story kind of being like weaved throughout of it. You know, so it's almost like two stories. One, that I, 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 so locally here in Baton Rouge, we had a, a teacher get arrested, um, I think two weeks ago, uh, for 100 counts of child porn. Like elementary school teacher, male elementary school teacher, well, my sister knew a woman whose daughter took from that guy. And a year ago, the daughter was acting really strange. And my sister gave that woman a book and said, here, this is my brother's book. Read it. And she didn't. So my sister called me last two weeks ago and said, you know, what do I tell her? She's like, I said, tell her to start at chapter eight. Like, I, I, I find Danny, you want to hear my story? It's the first seven chapters if you want to get to the i think it's no maybe chapter 12 i, I said tell her to start at chapter 12 because from chapter 12 to up until the last couple chapters that is my career that is me talking about real life things that happen at victim services center or real life things that's happened that i've observed on tv like the jerry sandusky situation at penn state um so it, it actually is is a very educational book right i totally agree and you talk about examples like when young kids know certain things that adults know. Like <laughs> oh, yeah, Turtle, turtle Girl. <laughs> turtle right. Girl. Uh, and, and see, now, this is the fun part about doing the book. It's like, so I, I actually did hire a book writing company to help me. And so 35%, the kind of like the self-help part, that's kind of what they did, and the rest is what I wrote. But uh, And when they actually, when they, I was reading their, their original draft, they had said that I had taken the phone call with Turtle Girl, but I didn't, Mike person I supervised took it and she came to me like white as a ghost eyes big and you know wide open and she was like this mother wants to know she thinks her daughter's being sexual abused and I'm like what was the case and for the listener the girl was like five or six years old and she drew a turtle with an erect penis and then when the teacher asked her can I say it on the air oh, just try to yeah no, okay no, yeah no, I, 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 so she, she drew yeah. She drew an erect penis, and when a teacher asked her what it was, she used the slang term that a you know comedian would use. Starts and with you, D. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes, D. yes, 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 yes. Um, and so, like, a five, six-year-old girl should not know what an erect penis looks like, let alone the slang term for it. So that was that was one example. But there, you know, there were a few other other cases, like the the one drunk woman who all the guys were lined up. Like she was so drunk. Like, she didn't even know where she lived. We had to look at her driver's license so we could take her home and put her in bed. And, like, she had no recollection of how she woke up the next day because she was taking pain pills and drinking. And if we would have taken her home, somebody would have taken her home and raped her. Right. So there's, like, all kinds of stuff. And you talk about bystander interventions. Very important. Like, people can intervene and stop and Oh, absolutely. And do stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then and there's certain things, like, uh, I know 
when it comes like going to a bar, you know, if, if someone's creeping you out, you can ask for a certain shot. And I think bars, and then this is one of the things I wish more bar owners would read the book, is that they would do that. They would put in the bathrooms like, you know, we're here for your safety. If someone's making you uncomfortable and you need a ride, you know, we'll get you an Uber. I mean, there's all kind of that in there as well. Right. So there's just tips like real life uh, tips and things like that. What do predators look for? Don't get involved in risky situations, you know, uh, avoidance, actual real things about grieving, coping, uh, surviving. Those are all really important elements about people and how they how they respond to kind of those, you know, uh, sexual. The most the most important thing that I tell people, like, I think it's the most important thing about uh, child sexual abuse is in order for someone to abuse a child, they have to get the child alone. So if someone wants to spend more time with your child than you do, that's a red flag. Actually, it's a red rocket. It's huge. Like, that's it. Like, they were, they're finding some reason or some way to... Yeah, yeah. and I, I even, I, even, I mentioned that because me and my nephew, I took him to the... Um, I took him to the LSU basketball game, but my brother called me. They were busy. They didn't have time. They're like, hey, can you bring um, my nephew Dylan to hit? He had a, a basketball game. He was in middle school, and he had a basketball game, and they didn't have anyone to bring him. And I said, okay, I'll bring him. I didn't seek it out. I've never done anything with him ever since, but I was able to help my brother out. Now, if someone's constantly like, come on, Dylan, come run with your Uncle Jody, tickle, tickle. Yeah, creep. Stay away from him. Right. So there's a lot of warning. There's a lot of warning signs that people miss. But uh, like you said in the book, it's usually somebody very close, family member. Someone that you know and trust. Yeah, they try to get the trust, the whole element of trust. Um, Jody, what would you like to add? We're at about 35 minutes. Anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up this discussion? I mean, just I, again, it, I'll tell you what. I even have a free link to anyone who just wants the book. I, did, I mean, trust me, I want you to buy it. You can go to Amazon.com. Why Gary? Why it's there? I want you to buy it, but I want kids not to be molested. So if you can't afford the book, or you know you're hesitant, just email me. Um, you can go to my webpage jodyploche.net. I'm on Twitter at jploche. Uh, I'm on Facebook. You can message me. I mean, to me, that's the most important thing. Um, but I, I really want every parent to read it. It should be sold in like women's hospitals where they have babies. Like it should be, it should be given to every parent. I wish, I wish some rich dude would listen to this and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to buy a million copies and we're going to put them in all the little hospitals where, where babies are born. You know, I mean, but it really is, it really is an important book. Yeah. Because you're, it's harm prevention. You're keeping people out of harm and going through the, well, the let, let, let me ask you this question. Cause I mean, I know you kind of, you know, went through it a little bit, kind of, you know, reading here and there. Did you find anything in there that you thought was funny? Because, like, I literally, I tried to mix humor in there to where people aren't trying to slit their wrists when they're done. So I think, I think there'll be moments where people will laugh out loud. I had, I gave, or she actually bought a book um, to this bartender about a month ago, and she did a review on it. And she said, I've never read a book where I was crying and then laughing out loud in the same paragraph. So, I, I mean, I, 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 I don't go into that much detail because you know i didn't want like pedophiles to read it like penthouse forum but uh i don't think there's enough to trigger a victim i mean you might have to put it down and come back to it later but i took that into consideration as well so if anyone's a victim and is reading the book and the only really negative review i got on amazon was old crystal she uh she said i'm bragging and i immediately i i screenshot it post on facebook and i said you damn right i'm bragging 
You know, I was sexually abused for a year. I was kidnapped. My dad shot the guy on TV and I turned out I was able to graduate from college. I was able to give back. Yeah. So maybe I, I, I am bragging. Hmm. But I didn't, what I didn't I, get that sense. I got the sense that you went through it and then it, you wanted to make sure give that back. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I gave back. So people who've never been through something like that and would wonder, like, why would he keep going to karate? Um, why wouldn't he just tell his parents the first time he touched him? I want to I, I give you that. I let you know kind of what I was experienced, how they do it. And you'll have a better understanding of the topic. This and it's a scary topic that people don't like to talk about. But I think when you read this, you'll be comfortable reading it and you'll you'll be able to learn a lot. I think so. It's very like accessible. It doesn't read like a self-help book to me. It reads like somebody telling their story. So I think that's an important difference than some of these other books that are too too clinical or anything like that. Can you say, Jody, can you say your website again? Um, it's jodyploche.net. That's J-O-D-Y-P-L-A-U-C-H-E dot net. And for anyone who's never seen the unedited version of the shooting, it's on there. It's on there. And so then it's Ploche, P-L-A-U-C-H-E dot net. And people can reach out to you there, too. So uh, they have, a, you have contact information. Now. Well, I'm very you know how I got how we kind of got in touch. Someone on the comments of YouTube mentions you and I guess they reached out to you. So, I mean, I'm very, very, very easy to get in touch with. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, uh, Jody. Really appreciate it again. Full title of the book is Why Gary, Why, and a question mark. But uh, congratulations on the book. Thanks for writing. Ah, thank you for having me on as a guest. Good luck. All right. All right. Thanks. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. All right. Stay there.